Hey everyone, and welcome back to VIA, the podcast where together we're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. I'm your host, Matt Winley, and today we're diving into the book of Jonah. Uh, I would encourage you to put your Bible nerd hat on because this is not going to be a quick scan of the book. The The goal here, the, the hope, is to thoughtfully approach the text. We want to listen well, we want to ask good questions, and hopefully as we get through the four chapters, we're going to discover some insights that we've never noticed before, particularly even with a book of the Bible that most people say they're familiar with. Now, in an ideal world, I would encourage you, I hope you have already read through the book of Jonah. And I don't mean that your pastor preached on it two or three years ago. I would encourage you to go ahead and, if you have not done so, take five, ten minutes, read through the book of Jonah. These podcasts will absolutely do more for you if you've read through it recently. In fact, the more that you read it, I would encourage you to read it maybe once a week as we go through this, the more you're going to notice about the structure, the themes, and the characters. They're going to stick out. So for today, in order to keep these episodes from being too long, I I try not to go over an hour, we're going to be going through this book in small chunks. So this will be the first three verses today, and I can already hear your questions. Yes, there's plenty of content in the first three verses. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, this first verse, uh, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, is actually a gigantic setup. It's meant to create a lot of expectation about what you're expecting to see, about what the story will be about, and then it completely flips it upside down. It's like if you were to go to a bookstore or a library today and you pick out a book and the writer starts talking about a creepy house at night, right? Like what sort of expectations would begin to load into your mind about the story that you're about to hear? You have these certain expectations. You're expecting a scary movie, maybe a horror movie. But then if the author goes off script and it's a comedy, you take notice. And that's what's happening here. When you have a minute, just flip through some of the other prophetic books of Scripture. Some are going to have the exact same wording. Now, the word the Lord came to. Um, Others are going to talk about the oracle of the Lord, but they all follow a very similar pattern. You're introduced to God's prophet, and then you read through the words the prophet faithfully proclaims over and over and over again. God's prophet's introduced, then then you get the words. God's prophet, the words. Except here, the, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah And you think you're about to get a book of prophetic poetry, similar to Micah, Isaiah, Malachi. But then the rest of Jonah is less concerned with the speech of the prophet rather than what what the prophet does, rather than the prophet's actions. So if if you read chapter 3, if you've already read through the book of Jonah, like I said, I encourage you to do so. The only prophetic words that get recorded are about a sentence long, which is eight words in English. That's the entirety of uh, of the prophet's words on God's behalf. Eight words in English. And that should make you wonder, what's going on here? Why? What is the author trying to do here? If it's not fitting the normal pattern, what's the point? So whoever it is, and we talked about who the author could have been in the intro podcast, they like to mess with your expectations. They, they make you think. They're, they're breaking patterns. And it starts almost immediately at the beginning of the book. They're going to continue to do so throughout the book. And it's something to take notice of when I'm expecting one thing and I get another. Why? What, what, what point are they trying to drive home? Um, But right right at the very beginning, it's just a a gigantic setup. Now, this phrase, the word of the Lord, 
Uh, I want to take a closer look at it because I think it's very easy to skip over it. You just want to get to the good stuff. What's the story about? And, and, and honestly, we've heard this phrase so many times that we read it and we just pass by it without even thinking about it. But what's actually happening here? Uh, first off, just consider the fact that we have God speaking to someone. You know, he's not bound to do so. He, he doesn't have to. It, it, it tells us something about the God that's communicating, right? That, that he's relational. He communicates with us. He invites us into some type of relationship. He wants to know something about us, and he wants us to know something about him. He's not just far off. He's not just distant. He, 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 not, he didn't just create the world and let it spin, and he's just removing himself. He cares to make something known about his wishes or his feelings. So particularly those of us who have grown up in a Judeo-Christian culture, don't take for granted that self-revelation of God. He does not owe us you know, any kind of revelation, and yet he speaks. And it may not always be the way that we want him to, but he does. So we have the word of, and then who who is it the word of? What type of God is this? This is the word of the Lord. The word Lord there is an important one. You get these four letters capitalized, particularly in the ESV. It's referring to uh, the name of God. Uh, that's the way it's written in most English Bibles. But when you see these four letters there, it's not just emphasizing his name. It's what's called in nerdy theological language, the tetragrammaton. That, that word just simply means four letters. It's four letters in Hebrew, actually, that spell out the divine name given to Moses in Exodus 3. Um, what, I would, what I would encourage you to do is go to Exodus 3 and, and then do a search through the Old Testament of what is it? What does God's name invoke? Like when I hear God's name, what am I supposed to be picturing? Um, it's commonly pronounced Yahweh. So we, we don't just have any God directing Jonah. This is Yahweh, the one who was and is and is to come. That's, that's part of what his name means. He's Yahweh, the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. He, he's the creator of all things. The, the name of God isn't just a, a designation, but it invokes his character and his actions. Just like if I were to call someone by their name today, I don't just think of their name as a label, but I, I picture who they are. I picture their person. And that's who's giving Jonah this command. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of Yahweh, a, a particular God. Now, Jonah himself, he's identified as the son of Amittai. And you'll, you'll find a reference to the same prophet in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah served during the time when King Jeroboam ruled over Israel. And the, the king, Jeroboam, was said to have continued in the evil of many of the previous kings. And yet Jonah, what he does in 2 Kings chapter 14 is he prophesies that Israel's borders would extend. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite the king's unfaithfulness, God is still going to increase Israel's borders. Which is interesting because you have God sending a prophet, who's Jonah, to do something good for someone, Jeroboam, Jeroboam in Israel, who does not deserve it. So remember that as we get further into Jonah, that he's willing to do that for people that he likes. Prophesy something good, despite the fact that they don't deserve it. But what about for those he's not friends with? Is he willing to prophesy on their behalf if they're his enemies? Uh, his name itself is a bit of irony. Jonah means dove. Uh, so what kind of images you know, pop up in your mind from the Bible? What kind of images does a dove provoke from the Bible? You think of innocence or, or peace or purity. And that's not exactly Jonah, if you've read through the book. But then he's also the son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness. And Jonah's anything but faithful. He, he's not exactly a beacon of, of peace either, right? So again, everything in the story is upside down. Even the name of Jonah himself, who he is, is a caricature of what he actually is. Um, so Jonah is called to give a word of the Lord to this particular place, to Nineveh. 
Um, he says, go proclaim a message to Nineveh, which is a bit unusual, right? This is not an, an Israelite city. God has a message and it's not for someone that's in Israel. He's sending his prophet directly to a foreign nation. And that's odd, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, other prophets had messages for uh, foreign nations. Think of Nahum, think of Obadiah. But God didn't direct them to go there and give it. In, in fact, you, you wonder, you know, how did the message get there? But Jonah is the only prophet that I can tell, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, who's specifically sent to a foreign nation to proclaim God's words to them. So God says, go to Nineveh, go to this important city in the Assyrian Empire, and go and tell them what I want you to tell them. Um, so if you're not familiar with Nineveh, it, it was a city in the Assyrian Empire. It was on the east bank of the Tigris River, so pull up a map sometime. Uh, if, you, if you look for Jerusalem, it's to the north and east of Jerusalem, and it would have been a significant journey for Jonah. And it's called that great city in, in verse 2. Th- there are a lot of scholars who've done a lot of work attempting to figure out why it's called, quote-unquote, great. It, and it's not God just saying, like, they're awesome, I love them. <laughs> That's not the way the word was used. Um, so some people think, you know, is it is it great because it's being connected to the Assyrian Empire, just the, the amount of influence they had? Uh, is it the size uh, or the significance of Nineveh within the empire? Um, I, doing the research, I, I just haven't really seen a convincing case for, for any particular view. W- one of the things, though, that you do notice in the book of Jonah, whatever the view, you know, there's probably one right view, but whatever the case, the author likes these kind of descriptions. There's a great wind in verse 4. There's a great tempest in verse 12. There's a great fish in verse 17. And, that, and that's just the first chapter. Everything feels big and dramatic throughout the book. There's great, great, great. It's, it's Everything is kind of overstated. And so I think that might be kind of what's happening here with Nineveh. It's that great city. Uh, there's plenty of references to Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in the Old Testament. Uh, the first is in the Table of Nations. If you go to Genesis 10, you can see some of the interactions between Israel and the Assyrian Empire in First and Second Kings. The prophet Nahum, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he also pronounced God's judgment upon the Ninevites, but as we said, he, he didn't go to them. Um, so these were not friends of Israel. They, the Assyrian Empire was particularly known for their cruelty. And in some ways, if you brought up the, uh, the Assyrians in, in Israel at that time, their name brought up many of the same emotions that the word Nazi would today. When you think of Nazi, you think of concentration camps, and you think of their cruelty, and you think of the horror of everything that happened. And it's the same way with Israelites when they think of the Assyrian Empire. This was who God is sending Jonah to go prophesy toward. There, there's a sense in which the ancient reader probably would sympathize with Jonah at first. I mean, spoiler alert, Jonah doesn't want to go. And the ancient reader probably sympathized with him. I wouldn't want to go to the Assyrian Empire either. And the thought was, of course they deserve judgment. They, they, they don't deserve mercy. Let's go give them judgment. Um, if you want to see something interesting, look up uh, the Lachish Reliefs. Uh, it's L-A-C-H-I-S-H. This, this would have been years after Jonah. Um, so this, Jonah did not have this in mind. This is, again, after he's come and gone. But it's a, it's a good, I guess, a reflection on what that relationship between the nation of Israel and the, nation, and the Assyrian Empire would have been like. So in 701 BC, the Assyrian army invaded Judah. And they didn't take Jerusalem, but they did take some cities uh, around it, including Lachish. And their king, upon returning back to Nineveh, ordered a memory of the invasion to be carved. And so the, the Lachish reliefs were carved into stone on the walls of a central room in the palace. And you can find it in the British Museum. You can also look at it online. Uh, but the British Museum, they put it on a wall, just like it would have been in Assyria. 
And you can literally, if you if you start at the very beginning of it, just scan the wall and it tells a story of the entire invasion. And it's a horrific and brutal battle, particularly what happens to some of the survivors. And so um, just it'd be interesting for you to go look it up, uh, learn a little bit more about who the Assyrians were and, and their relationship with Israel. But to, just to be clear, the, they are not at peace. They were not friendly at all. But I will say this, and this is important for the, the remainder of the book. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, are still part of the all nations that God wants to bless and give mercy to. Think back to his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 22, that God wants to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham, and that includes the hated Assyrians. And so by the end of the book, Jonah's going to force the question into the Hebrew reader's mind, and hopefully into our mind, do I have a hesitation in my heart to give anyone mercy? Am I like Jonah, who when there's an opportunity to give mercy to these people, I'd rather run the other way? Who are the Ninevites in my life? And, and I think about this a lot of times in the, in the terms of uh, politics in this day and age. You know, we, we tend to have these caricatures of the other side, and we hate them a lot of times. I, I've heard a lot of vitriol toward political figures or people who happen to identify with a particular political party. And I can, I can see how, just like Jonah, there'd be people who would be hesitant to go and declare God's mercy upon someone on the other side. And so who are the Ninevites in my life? It might not be political. It might be um, for some other reason. But who are those people in your life that when it comes to, okay, is there someone that needs to know about the love of God? I'm unwilling to go just like Jonah. So God tasked Jonah with a message to give to Nineveh, and it's not as straightforward as you might think. There's more going on here than just proclaiming imminent destruction, because if you just read it in the plain English, you think, well, Jonah's going to go, and he's going to declare that God's going to destroy them, and that would actually be a pretty fun message for Jonah to give, right? Uh, Remember, Jonah would be happy to see his enemies defeated, Um, but it's just not as simple as that. Jonah would have probably been the first one to sign up for that task if it was as simple as going, hey, guys, You've been doing evil. God's not very happy with you. He's going to bring judgment. So I'm going to go get a chair and sit outside the city wall, and I'm going to watch him rain down judgment upon you. Jonah would have happily gone and done that. He probably would have brought some friends, and they would have enjoyed bringing that news. But you realize right away that Jonah does not want to go. He knows something that doesn't at first seem apparent. Because we, we read this text, and we're like, why doesn't Jonah want to go? If he doesn't like the Ninevites, and God's going to declare judgment against them, why would he not be the first one to go, yes, that's great. I'll go do it right now. And what ha- what's happening behind the scenes is that because of God, the character of God, Jonah knows the character of God. Jonah knows what this message means, that if the Ninevites hear this message and they repent, then God will relent from that disaster. Then God will spare the Ninevites. And that's the last thing that Jonah wants to happen. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this in the Old Testament is in the Jeremiah scroll. God has Jeremiah go to a potter's house to watch him work with clay. And when we think about the, the, the typical imagery of potter clay in the Bible, we often think about it in a way that's, that, that gives the clay no say in the matter, that the potter will do what he will. But that's not exactly what God tells Jeremiah. I, I just want to let the text speak, and, and you kind of come away with whatever you think the text is saying. But I think the text is pretty clear here. The potter is working with the clay, and it spoils in the potter's hand. And so the potter reworks it, and Jeremiah watches this. And then listen to what God says. This is the message that he wants Jeremiah to take away and tell other people. This is the message he wants Jeremiah to learn based on that image that he just saw of the potter reshaping the clay. 
This is Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 5 through 11. And keep this in mind because it's important when you're hearing about God sending Jonah to give a message of judgment to Nineveh. Uh, again, Jeremiah 18, verses 5 through 11. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, listen, I will relent of that disaster that I intended to do. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and dividing a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil ways and amend your ways and your deeds. God, listen, listen to what God directly says here. God directly says that if he declares disaster upon a nation and they repent, then he will relent. Right? And he's trying to get Israel to see this. He even says so in verse 11. I am shaping disaster against you. And he's hoping that they'll reflect back on the previous verses and go, okay, God's calling disaster against us. We need to humble ourselves. We need to confess our sin. We need to repent and turn back to the Lord, and he will relent from that disaster. And this is the underlying understanding that the Hebrews would have had that we miss unless we put ourselves in the mind of an ancient Hebrew, someone who's familiar with the Old Testament um, scriptures. And Jonah knew this. Uh, he, he might not have had Jeremiah in mind, but this is, uh, this is about the character of God that's exhibited from Genesis all the way through. And, and that's why Jonah acts the way that he does. Um, so the, the message, although it seems like one that Jonah would be happy to go and give, there's a lot more underneath it than what you might think at first glance. Now, one more thing about this message before uh, we close out with Jonah's response, okay? These are two kind of big ideas before we finish. God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he says, for their evil has come up before me. Now, that's a very interesting way to phrase that, right? Like, that's not a normal way you would say something like that. God says, go to Nineveh for their evil has come up before me. He doesn't just say, go to Nineveh because they're really bad. Go to, go to Nineveh because I hate seeing what they do. He, he particularly says, for their evil has come up before me, as if there's something about what they're doing that just rises up before God and makes God take notice, right? It's not just that God knows the evil, but, you know, is there, you know, there, there's, there's something else happening. Um, and, and it's just odd the way that it's worded. So is there anything else that's happened in scripture that, that kind of helps us make more sense of this? So what I wanted us to do is go back to the beginning, back to Genesis. And the author of Jonah is wanting you to have some of these stories, some of these expectations, some of these themes in mind as you read. That's the reason why it's worded the way that it is. So if you go back to Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin, and they're banished from the garden, right? They, they move east of Eden, uh, move east of the garden, um, moves, they move east of the, the garden in Eden. They have two sons, Cain and Abel, and you, you see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, um, which this is a rabbit trail and a whole other podcast, but it would be worth for you to think through it sometime. What kind of sacrifices were these, right? Like, why did they feel the need to offer them? You know, this is way before the priestly system was set up, after the Exodus. So why these sacrifices? What did they mean? A lot of good questions. We don't have time for them today. But, you know, a good cup of coffee, sit down, think about it. But God, they offer these sacrifices, and God accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's, right? Cain gets angry, and God warns him. Listen to the way God warns him, Genesis 4, 6-7. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. All right, I, I love this little depiction of sin, that it's, it's, it's looking to rule over uh, Cain. But God says, you need to rule over it. And Cain's presented, presented with this choice. He's got, a, he's got an opportunity to overcome sin, to deny the, the, sin, the sinful tendency of what he's experiencing, or to let it rule over him. And of course, we know that Cain kills Abel, and then God begins to confront him, right? And in the middle of that confrontation, you get this little sentence here, Genesis 4.10. And the Lord said, what have you done? Now pay attention to this. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Do you hear what's being echoed there in the book of Jonah? You have a, an act of injustice that's happened upon Abel. And it's as if that evil has come up before God and there's an opportunity um, there's an opportunity for God to enact justice upon the world, and in this case, onto Cain. Um, these are both cases of blood, evil coming up before God, and then he's going to act justly in these situations. He's going to bring judgment. Uh, you have another one in Genesis, Genesis 18, 20 and 21. Um, God's revealing to Abraham his plans regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not... I will know. Um, again, you have this idea of whatever they are doing, it's being cried out and it's going up to God. God's taking notice and now he's going down to bring judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. So just like the, the evil of the Ninevites rising up, just like Cain slaying Abel and Abel's blood rising up, now you have this outcry based on what Sodom and Gomorrah are doing and it's rising up. All right, last one. There's more, but we're just going to end here. Exodus 2.23, Jacob's family has moved to Egypt um, under God's guidance through Joseph, right? Many generations pass, and as the generations pass, the pharaohs, uh, just, you know, um, there's different pharaohs who take the throne. They forget who Joseph was. They enslave uh, his family, who are the Israelites. And then in verse 23 of chapter 2, you get this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Again, we have this cry coming up to God, and he's got a choice. He's got a chance to vindicate, to bring justice. And so you see this theme, a cry rising up to God for judgment, justice, vindication. There's this story pattern repeated over and over in different ways throughout the Old Testament. So if you're an ancient Hebrew reader, you're going to look for these kind of elements in the story. Okay, do I see injustice rising up to God? Do I see God acknowledging the injustice and the and the and then... He's going to threaten to bring justice. And then, because of that, I'm going to expect an opportunity and a time for repentance, just like Moses comes and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. There, there's opportunity for Pharaoh to relent from what he's been doing. Um, and then the expectation is that people will either continue what they're doing and justice will commence, or people are going to be drawn back to him and they're going to be they're going to be better image bearers, right? So you have this story arc. Injustice. God's uh, it, it coming up before God, God threatening to bring justice, and, and then an opportunity and time for repentance, uh, and then people drawing back to Him or rejecting God. So that's that's the that's the story that we have in the Old Testament that we're expecting to see in the Book of Jonah. It's uh, it's not evident unless you've been reading the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, but that's why your regular reading of Scripture is important. So you see these themes come up over and over and over again. Now, let's finish. 
these three these first three verses by talking about Jonah's response. We've looked at the message, but now I want to I want us to take a closer look at Jonah's response and why it's very provocative at the very beginning of the book. And this is probably the point that I want you to take home the most. So Jonah's God's prophet. You you would think that he would love being close to God, right? You would think he would he loves to tell people what God says. Except this time, right? And and as an, as an aside, I didn't really plan to say this, but as an aside, I would just say, just because someone's in a particular position doesn't mean that they're always doing right. So even though someone might be a pastor, even though someone might be a podcaster, even though someone might be a leader, whatever, you still need to sift their words through what you know of Scripture. You still need to sift their actions through what you know of Scripture and be have a good discernment. So if, if you would have been back in that time and you would have seen Jonah acting wrongly, you would not have been like, oh, he's God's prophet, so he must be doing right. And when we're listening to people, whether it be on a podcast, you need to sift my words well, right? Make sure I'm saying things that are right. Or whether you're listening to a pastor or a teacher, make sure to, to pay attention to the way that they live, pay attention to the way they talk, and see if they really are following God the way that they claim to be. So you would think that Jonah loves to tell people what God says, except this time, right? Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Notice the chain of words that are really designed to highlight Jonah's disobedience, right? He starts out by rising, which is what God says, arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah arises and then he flees. <laughs> you know, like he he begins first step and then completely runs the other way. He flees to Tarshish, but then notice again this, this descent. He flees to Tarshish, down to Joppa, down into a ship, and he just keeps going down. If you read further on into chapter 1, uh, he goes down into the inner part of the ship, and then he's tossed down into the sea, and then he goes even further down into the fish's belly. So you see this this constant descent from Jonah, and it's as if his it's as if his disobedience like sent him on a spiral that he couldn't control. So at first he's fine with going down down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the inner part, but then it once he once he began to be disobedient from God, he couldn't stop the effects of what was going to happen then. He's cast into the sea, then he's cast into the fish. Uh, he he is not in control anymore, right? Once he started going down, the pattern just continued. And isn't that the way that sin ends up being a lot of times? We start down one direction and we just can't stop the pattern. We can't we can't stop the descent into what we're doing. And I think Jonah is a very good example of that here. So we see the author really highlighting Jonah's disobedience. He's going away, he's going down, he's not rising up to go to Nineveh. Uh, and it says he's fleeing from Tarshish, which gets repeated, um, or he's fleeing to Tarshish, which gets repeated three times. And I think the repetition highlights the direction that he's going, but also the fact that it's the wrong city, right? <laughs> you get this over and over and over again that it's not Nineveh. Just in case you didn't know, he's going to Tarshish, not Nineveh. Going to Tarshish, not Nineveh. You're, it's kind of drilled into your head. And we've already begun to discuss, you know, why Jonah fled. And, and I want to add a little bit more to it here, but I want to wait to chapter 4 to really let Jonah speak for himself as we, as we kind of nail that home when we get there. But here's what, I, here's what I want us to land on today. He's not running because he's scared of Nineveh, at least not according to the text. Nowhere do we get this idea that he's scared. Uh, I think a lot of people have this imagery that because it's the Assyrian Empire, because they're cruel, because the, there's all that enmity between them and the Israelites, that Jonah was just scared. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid of what they would do. That's not the case at all, at least, at least according to the text. And really, he's not even just running away from Nineveh, right? 
how is it framed in these first three verses? He's not just running from Nineveh to Tarshish in the sense that he's running the other way from where he's called. Yes, that's true. But what does the text say? It's even more significant than just running from Nineveh. He's running, quote-unquote, away from the presence of the Lord. It's repeated twice, and then it's repeated once more for good fashion later on in the chapter, just so that we don't miss it. Jonah's not running for fear of the Ninevites. He's running because he wants to get away from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to be next to the person who's calling him to go to the Ninevites to give them mercy, uh, to give them a chance to repent so that then God might relent from the disaster. He wants to get away. And how often are we the same way when we feel conviction about something? We want to get away from the presence of the Lord. We distract ourselves. We busy ourselves so that we may not hear God's spirit as loud, uh, you know, to, to reach out to our neighbors, to, to love the least of these, etc., we run just like Jonah, but Jonah physically runs, trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. And I, th- I think he knows that it's folly. I think he knows he knows the, the, the Psalms that talk about how you can't run away from God, but he's kind of lost his mind here, just like we do sometimes. And he's trying to get away from the one who's calling him to Nineveh. And again, it's, it, we, so we see another textual clue, this idea of running away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, it's another textual clue that points us back to Genesis. And, and this is where I really want us to land, and I want you to see the importance of what the author's trying to say, okay? We've already looked at this story before. This is Genesis 4. Go back to Cain and Abel. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me, all of these different ways that Jonah mirrors Cain, and we're going to see it all throughout the book of Jonah. But at the end of the conversation between Cain and God, this is right after Cain kills uh, Abel, listen to verse 16. Genesis 4:16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Guys, that is not a coincidence. They're not even close. The, the author of Jonah is picking up that language very specifically, very directly, from Genesis to describe Jonah on purpose. Just as Jonah is running away from the presence of the Lord, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. There's all sorts of ways that you could have described that, and the author of Jonah wants you to know that Jonah is a Cain-like figure. He's painting Jonah as Cain. And that's what's so striking about the beginning of this book. It's not just setting up a story, but it's also trying to put the reader in a very uncomfortable position. We've already talked about how this book is supposed to be a mirror so we can see ourselves in Jonah's story, right? We want to we want to see ourselves and ask the question, like, is there anyone that I would not be willing to give mercy, right? And it was the same for the Israelites, probably even more so because it, they were in that culture they were Jonah in the story. When, when Jonah the prophet is called to go and talk to the Ninevites, the, the Israelites would have put themselves in Jonah's shoes. So I want you to follow me here. If the Israelites were represented by Jonah, and Jonah is a type of Cain, what does that mean that the, reader, that the writer is telling the Ninevites? Like That's quite a way to open a book. That is scandalous to some degree by telling the readers that they're a bunch of Cains. You know, what is Cain known for? Cain is known for sacrificing the way that he wants to and not the way that God wanted. Cain is known for letting sin overtake him. Cain is known for violence against his brother. Cain is known for killing the innocent. Cain is known for walking away from the presence of God. Yet that's what we have. Jonah is a type of Cain, and, and he's not a hero figure. He's, he's an anti-hero, and there's, there's so much to learn from his interactions with God. But first, we have to realize that the author is trying to put us in a very uncomfortable situation, that if we're putting, if we're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of Jonah, and Jonah is actually a type of Cain, then we're supposed to see ourselves as Cain here. That that we are trying to live our own way, not the way that God wants us to. 
that at, at times we do let sin overtake us. That if we're not careful, we are going to be violent against other people. We're going to we're going to um, strike out against other people. We're going to walk away from the presence of God. And this whole book is a warning to not put yourselves in the shoes of just because I'm a prophet, just because I'm an Israelite means I'm in good standing with God. But instead, I'm actually Cain. I might think of myself as Abel. I might think of myself as the righteous one. But instead, God's showing me for what I really am. And that's a very provocative way to open a book. But that's what Jonah's doing. And so that's Jonah 1, 1 through 3. There's a lot going on there, right? It's so much to think on, so much to meditate on. And honestly, there's so many connections to other parts of Scripture. I'm sure there's even more than what I've brought out. But for now, just think about how significant this is to begin. We have Jonah fleeing from God. We have the, the author trying to, to paint us, paint the ancient Israelites, paint the, the readers, modern-day readers, as Cain. And we have to wrestle with, am I acting more like Cain or am I acting more like Abel? And in the next episode, we're going to look to see, you know, if Jonah's fleeing from God. In the next episode, we're going to see, is that possible? You know, could Jonah really free, flee from God? What, what does God do in response to Jonah's, uh, in response to Jonah's uh, journey away from him? Uh, and we're going to see kind of what, what is a redemption even for Jonah? Is there redemption for us? Is there redemption for the, the Cain-like people who are reading this book? Uh, as always, I can't say thank you enough for listening uh, and following Jesus with me. Uh, the scriptures are important, and and I want us to not only understand what they're saying, but also enjoy them. I, I love making these connections from Genesis into, into Jonah and seeing how the Hebrew writers play off of each other and use the same themes from different books of the Bible to highlight what they're trying to say. And to me, it makes it more vivid and more alive. Um, if you think someone else might enjoy going through Jonah with us, uh, do me a favor, share it with them. Uh, let, them let them know about the podcast. Uh, until next time, keep your eyes on Christ. Um, he's worth it. He's worth everything. Uh, I love you guys. I appreciate all of you. Have a good one.